1: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree. We're going to have a really special show. We're going to be having a guest with us for the hour talking about quantitative modeling some unique insights he he has he's a sort of really interesting startup research firm um and we're gonna talk to him for the hour um, but we have professor siegel from the beach in Anguilla. professor how is your return to normalcy out on vacation out on the beach
2: feels great um it really does um yeah this was a delayed vacation from a year ago that was you know uh, abruptly canceled and uh uh, it is welcome. And I have the feeling that others in a matter of months will be able to enjoy uh, some more outings as the economy opens up. Um, the market, uh, I would say the beat goes on. Uh, listen, we 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 mapped out this scenario you know, eight months ago, and it's just unfolding very much as 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 we predicted. Uh, I will say that uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, of course, met uh, a uh, new set of dot projections uh, of uh, projections of federal funds. It is totally not a credible uh, set of projections Have GDP grow at 6 percent unemployment, you know, in two uh, years go down to three and a half and still keep the Fed funds rate at, at zero. Uh, They do. uh, I think they're totally wrong here. It's an inconsistent uh, set of uh, projections. Um, uh, I think they're just revving it up. And um, uh, uh, the market uh, clearly uh, the next day, although, you know, uh, the 10 year rally uh, on the announcement and uh, the the news conference of uh, Chairman Powell, uh the next very next day it, it gave a thumbs down on the whole thing and and yields uh soared to record uh 175 and and right now it's 172. so i mean it's it's, it's and it's going to continue to go up it's just the market doesn't believe it uh it believes that there's going to be more inflation um and um uh you know again uh, as yields as go up, we do get that tilt towards the value stocks, away from the growth stocks, um, uh, uh, but uh, generally, this, this strong economy is going to uh, favor, favor all the stocks
1: if you saying that they uh they're not credible I mean where do, when you think like when they would have to hike rates how do you think if they're sort of doing their best estimates today and you know they're trying to let inflation run hot if you're in their shoes and a voting member like where do you see them where would you start hiking rates as inflation picks up and and, and we open up
2: well again we're not seeing any official statistics but don't forget the official statistics. Are for February. And nothing has been opened. We we have sensitive indicators. I mean, oil almost hit 70. It it, it certainly backed off yesterday a little bit. Uh, CRB index is way higher than it was pre-pandemic. Sensitive commodity indices um, and 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 the Biden program hasn't even kicked in yet. Um, so, you know, and, and there's going to be shortages. There are going to be shortages of labor, uh, materials, as people buy things and do things that they haven't done before, but uh, and going to push up prices. They're going to have the income to do that. Um, and again, we've, I've been giving projections of 4 or 5% uh it might go above it might be a little bit below but it's going to be it's finally going to be about a 20 percent inflation over two three years i think and that means the bond the 10-year bond rate should be much closer to three percent rather than 1.7 um i mean it has to be convinced that that's going to happen and and get up there uh again you want to be in stocks. um and three percent even isn't a threatening rate for uh, you know, given the returns going forward, but um, uh, you know, they, they, you know, the idea that you know th- th- I, they're definitely going to be raising rates much earlier, um, and that's going to cause tremors in the market. But the truth of the matter is, with with profits soaring, um, you know, uh, <laughs> um, I don't think the uh, the bull market is going to be deterred by the funds rate, you know, moving up 25, 30 basis points. Um, uh, where else are you going to go?
1: Yeah, and, and is, is, is taxes the big negative that you see, like if there is well, a case for negatives?
2: I, I, I'm trying to figure out how much, I, you know, we've been saying, I've been saying ever since the Senate, uh, you know, race was decided in Georgia that we are definitely going to have a tax increase. And I definitely think so. There's been some commentary that it might not get through, it will get through. Is the market discounted it? i would say and just off the top of my head maybe around 70% 60-70% discounted it but the strong economy is 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 the strong economy is, is uh, going to be more important corporate profits again part of it's going to be taken away by this tax cut and there will be a rise um, um, but um, my feeling is that most of that has been discounted. I think when, you know, it's going to be quite a few months before it gets in and uh we we want to see it in the employment data as time goes on it looks more and more like it won't be effective until uh most of it until 2022 at the at the earliest. Um but I do believe there will be a tax increase but it won't it won't be enough to derail this bull market. This bull market has another 10 12 15% to run then it flattens out. Um, and the run is going to be on on the value stocks as it has been for the last 6
1: months. Well so one final question, you know, the, one of the narratives has been with the rise in rates, you're all of a sudden seeing this like, concept of duration applied to equities and you've got the tech, you know, to your point on r- higher rates is causing the reopening trade, yet there's also been some pressure on quality or higher dividend stocks selling off on bond proxies, which are the lowest duration. It's like kind of this kind of weird thing. Mm-hmm. Any Anything there that you would say on, on yeah, how to well, think it's about duration? Yeah,
2: interesting because, the, you know, this, the, the narrative um, used to be that there was the dividend-paying stocks that were going to be most hurt. And and the growth stocks, they didn't care very much. Now, of course, as everyone says, well, you're discounting long term earnings. uh, You know, it's like the 30 year bond versus a 10 year bond. Interest rates go up, it's going to affect the 30 year bond more. Uh, So, as a result, the narrative has shifted. The growth stocks are going to be hurt more in the value. So, what I see when you say these dividend substitutes, that is actually classically what happened was the, the utilities and the dividend substitutes were quasi-bonds, and they would be hurt the most. Um, so there's, they still have, I think, a little bit of that residual uh, implication. But again, um, as, as uh, my research has shown, as our research has shown, you know, through inflation, the, the dividend-paying stocks, beat inflation and would they raise their dividend more than inflation raises of course standard bonds can't do that so uh you know my feeling is is that there's going to be a little bit of a proxy feel there um uh it used to be the way it it worked completely um um but uh, again the profit surge that we're going to be getting in virtually all the stocks is uh, going to be the dominant feature
1: well, Professor, uh, I want to let you get back to the beach. Uh, I will say, you know, we haven't been downtown for dinner ourselves like in a year. We went to Villa La Costa on Locust Street last night. It was uh, nice to get downtown Philly.
2: Well, it, it, it certainly is. I think we're all looking forward to to, to this opening up, and uh, it's, uh, it's 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 going to be a very good year.
1: Yeah, have enjoy the rest of your vacation. We'll we'll see you back next week. Certainly. Bye. Um, You know, we're going to be talking for the rest of the program. We've got Warren Pies of 314 Research. Um, Warren uh, just started 314 Research. It's a a sort of new research provider. We uh, at Wisdom Tree have become one of his very early clients. I've been impressed with what he's been putting out. We saw it on Twitter first and a lot of interesting charts and research on some of the major asset classes. Warren, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate it.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and why, how you sort of came to start up your own research service here.
0: Okay, yeah, um, my career, I I began my career as an attorney, actually, uh, working with the natural resources industry and doing land use and uh, permitting approvals, but I was always just kind of um, going back to college, and uh, I was always kind of just fascinated and really... uh, by the markets and trying to solve the markets, and so um, that was always a hobby of mine, even as an attorney. And so, a few years into that, I, I had met a friend to contact in the industry, and I, I came to him and I said, "You know, you know, I'm kind of getting old, or I felt old at the time, but looking back, I was actually kind of young, but I felt old." And I said, "Hey, is it am I unreasonable to try and make the switch right now and move over from uh, practicing law to to doing some kind of?" Uh, Research uh, role or managing money, and uh, and I wanted to stay. I, I had settled in Florida, and I wanted to stay in Florida. So I identified a couple places, and specifically, Ned Davis Research, which is where I ended up getting a job uh, on the commodities team. Uh, you know, so that was a little over a decade ago, and so I, I got into working at the, the commodities team. Eventually, took over. Um, all of the commodity work and, and headed up that side of the firm at, at Ned davis uh, was kind of known for specifically getting into oil and energy and, and some of those related investments so i did that for 10 years and then uh you know i've always had an itch to kind of broaden my horizons and, and i feel like uh NDR was one of those places where it was great. Uh, it was a great education. It was better than any school I could have gone to because it was just allowed me to, to dig into data and test data and uh, really just learn the ins and outs of, of building models and indicators and how you can fool yourself and, and how, uh, what's, what's real and what's uh, really a mirage. And that was just an, an awesome education that I'm, I'm very grateful for. Uh, then late last year uh ndr decided they didn't want to cover uh have a dedicated energy oil commodities uh role and so we parted ways and that was actually okay with me and actually uh something that i welcomed that next step in my career so i had a, a couple former colleagues at ndr and had reached out to them and said it's uh let's do this uh, let's create a research firm and and do it in the way that we think will work and that's that's really um, something different that's out that re- doesn't have a, a real corollary out on the market right now and so my my main partner Fernando Vidal was uh, worked with made in DR for a number of years and then he left and, and studied um, got his masters in machine learning and really attacked that side of uh uh, of data science and became a data scientist. Moved out to Silicon Valley, worked there for a number of years, and we've gotten together. And so we're the two core founders, and we have some other people who've come along and are, are helping us out. And so our goal is to take this this um, you know macro traditional macro research and, and really just add this next level of weave uh, machine learning into it and. You know, make sure that what we do is as honest and rigorous as possible, and prepare ourselves and our clients for uh, what we think is going to be a a 40-year future or a 30-year future that's going to look much different than the last 40 years. You know, every model that's built at this point in time is running a back test off of a period where rates have fallen consistently, and we really wanted to have a, a firm that was that was built around the idea that this future is is unlikely to look like the past. And so we need to figure out ways to build that into our process. And so that's what we've uh, embarked on and it's been three and a half months so far. And like you said, wisdom tree coming on and as a, as a partner early on was just amazing. And, uh, it shows, uh, how you're able to take a a chance on a a startup research provider, I think that that speaks highly of uh, your creativity and ability to see that around those corners, too, so... Appreciate well, I, that.
1: well, nice. I mean, listen. I think you the, you certainly are producing some interesting charts that uh, that gets your your eyebrows raised and and then you know it's been been nice to get weekly a weekly service, different model updates, and different uh, deep dives in different parts of the world. I, I love what you just said about how the last forty years were a declining rate. I mean, you just heard Professor Siegel say he thinks we're going to have inflation, I, and I think he's calling for inflation higher than most of the standard academics. Um, and uh, sort of interesting. So I think that jives with one of our worldviews here. But how do you think about you know when people say you've never seen a bad back test and you run these models right and and i think ndr is like one of the classic firms that has hundreds and hundreds of different charts and and presentations of models that do different things in different environments how do you think about the pitfalls of modeling and and sort of just building a back test and and constructing the narrative around it what's what's how do you think about that from first principles
0: well i mean i think the number one uh the, the number one issue you have to be aware of is overfitting your model to a history and uh and so you know um one of the things we do for for our models for instance is to do cross validation and out of sample testing i think that's a major improvement right away because it's much harder to overfit the model when you're doing out of sample testing but most models uh, and then when you know you can kind of from there i i think uh You can identify an overfit model a lot of times when you see a parameter that doesn't look entirely logical so if uh you see a kind of a scale of zero to 100 and we're looking at a model that gets triggered every time you hit 32.6 on that scale uh and the back test looks really good uh, you should ask yourself like what's special about 32.6 and what should make 32.6 a durable signal Going into the future, and for the most part, I think that's kind of a good uh, a place, a weak spot where you should be digging in and saying, "Hey, this doesn't make uh, a ton of sense. Maybe I'm picking up, maybe I'm fitting the noise right now." And, and that that happens. Um, actually, I would say that's the rule, not the exception in the the models I've seen in my career. Uh, it's hard to build a true. If it was easy to build a true, a good alpha model, you know, we would. Probably the, um, you know, it, it's just a, it's a much more difficult problem to yeah. solve than I, I think it appears when you looking at the models like that.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, you have your, your background in, in I guess you started in saying energy, you're going to you're covering others. But, you know, this is an interesting week to talk about oil because oil has been uh, is one of those has been straight up markets this year until this week. You got a little bit of a, a drawdown. Maybe tell us tell us about how you think about oil as an asset class and, and what when you're modeling it uh, type of things you've done there.
0: Yeah, we, we have a model. Um our model for, for crude oil, it's again, it's it's taking the um, the years of work and study that I've done in that space, uh, and then uh, applying again that some of those machine learning uh, properties that my partner specializes in, and I think it's a really uh, a really great framework for viewing oil. With that said, we've been this model's been neutral on on crude for really the majority of this big post-vaccine rally. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, um, to be totally honest, my partner will call me or talk to me and say, hey, you know, are you worried about the model being neutral in the face of this big rally? And to be totally honest, no, I'm not. I, I, you know, I've, that's how I've seen the market personally. I don't think I would have been in a much different place than the model over this, uh, you know, and I would have been, I guess that makes me wrong in some ways. So I wasn't going to be short the market, but not, didn't want to really be bold up long either. And the reason for that is, is is this a really a false market right now in oil? And it's another reason why, you know, I heard Professor Siegel. I respect his opinion uh, a ton. uh, Talk about inflation, but anytime you start putting mapping oil prices right now into your inflation equation, I think you have to realize this is still an impaired market. Uh, We haven't seen travel come back. There's a massive hole in demand. We're still well below um, global demand on crude oil from pre-crisis levels, so we're at pre-crisis prices, but not pre-crisis demand levels. And the whole way we've gotten there is by OPEC just continuously tightening the screws on, on the supply side. And, and, and it's been the right move for them, I believe. Uh, but that, that, what that does, and it shows up in some of the indicators I look at, we can, we can go through those, but what, the, what OPEC does when they tighten the supply side that much is they, they create this illusion of tightness in the market. And that's what we've seen. You know, inventories have drawn down uh, outside of this, this period of uh, a crazy freeze in Texas. Uh, you know, we saw in US total petroleum inventories move lower consistently during this post-vaccine rally, which you should take as a positive if you're building a crude oil model or view out on, on oil. One of the things I like to look at is the physical market, and and you can define the physical market in a number of ways, crack spreads, um, key differentials. Uh, One of the things I like to look at, though, is curve shape. And so we saw the curve go from a record uh, super contango back in spring of last year at the height of all this. We had the OPEC war. We had lockdowns, all that stuff. Well, we finally stopped the market up and OPEC keeping the supply tight has moved that curve into a really a steep backwardation. And what that means when the, when the curve's in backwardation and you see near months trading higher than out months um, on the curve, it's just the market's incentivizing all that oil that's been stored to come out of storage and onto the market. It's the easiest way to see that on a current supply-demand basis, the market is uh, – there's, there's a deficit – in favor of uh, demand demands outstripping supply and so we need those marginal barrels to come out of storage and fill that gap so the backwardation the curve in general is kind of the traffic cop for the crude oil market And when you see that steep backwardation it tells you that we are in deficit we're currently in deficit now with all that said we're in deficit because uh, opec has record spare capacity they're holding a, a lot of crude off the market and this is not a sustainable situation for their budgets or for the world in general. So this oil is coming back online. This is just like a, this is going to be a a dark cloud that hangs over the market until we start to normalize. And so this is why um, I look at the the calls for a super cycle and the ultra bullish positioning that uh, a lot of the I see a lot of people on Twitter, like you said, and like just people I, I interact with who want to play the oil and energy market. They'll buy the low-quality names and, and get that extreme beta to the trade. I, I've no, I haven't i have been in that place. The, the trades I've recommended to my clients during this period have been what I think are stocks that you can own through the full cycle and uh, stocks that are conservatively priced and are good deals. And when you're talking about mid-50s crude oil, Versus uh, just you know out of the money call options on higher crude oil prices, which is what a lot of these crappy shale players are, you know at this point in time.
1: Very interesting. We're, we're talking with Warren Pies, who's founder of 314 Research, a brand new uh, research provider, does a lot of work on on commodities modeling. So, Warren, let, let's, you know, you, you talked about machine learning in addition to these other factors. So if you go just let's, let's sort of wrap up the oil model for a second. So you, you talked about inventories. You talked about positioning. You talked about the producers. And then this curve shape and sort of the curve shape changing with some of the more interesting charts you, I've seen from you in terms of, of, of putting, you know, like basically a trading strategy around what do these things do and, and tie that to a view. How do you then wrap machine learning around all that to come up with a, a final 314 model for, for crude?
0: Yeah. So to be like a, a put a real fine point on it, we have four components that are reside inside our model. Right. And these components are built with we don't just. Throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. We have a, a really strong knowledge base for these markets, and that's why I think it's important to combine the qualitative macro analysis with this, you know, rigorous uh, quant stuff. So, you know, we take my knowledge of crude oil, which is that we four components matter, four major components matter. Inventories—that's your scoreboard for supply and demand. You know, is, is oil going into or out of an inventory? Uh, physical market, which, you know, the primary driver of physical market in our model is curve shape and differentials, okay? Uh, Technicals, which is just price action. One of the things I've always said in my career is you want to build conviction through fundamentals but manage risk through technicals. And so you always have to have a technical overlay, even if you're someone who thinks it's voodoo. I think it's important um, to keep you from getting in trouble. And then positioning, which is really I look at positioning. That's your. um, I look at the managed money positions in in the futures market. Those are like hedge fund CTA's. It's your fast money. It's been a great signal. I put that chart out on Twitter from time to time. And one of the things, one of the reasons why that model stayed neutral through a lot of these months is that the positioning is is actually pretty lopsided in, in favor of long positions versus short positions in the crude oil market and historically uh, you know this gets this makes the market vulnerable so when you see like a eight or ten percent you know quick washout in the market uh, to me that's not t- too surprising given where we're at on positioning so in order for me to get more constructive what i want to see is um get us a little farther along in the in the recovery and but more important than that shake out some of these long positions build in short positions it gives you a fat pitch and we haven't gotten that fat pitch despite this this, this really nice rally. And so we take these four components, each one is, it has their own model. We apply uh, some machine learning techniques and you know the algorithm selection and testing on that. I, I leave that to Fernando, the part, my partner that I work with. And, and then we wrap it up into uh, one master model and, and do all of our testing and cross validation so that it's all out of sample. And so if you see a back test, for instance, on our crude oil model, that entire back test is fused together out of sample. Uh, returns so no overfitting whatsoever in that in, in that back test and I think it in, you end up with uh, in my opinion it's the it's the best uh, crude oil model that's out uh, in the uh, independent institutional research space.
1: That's uh, that's interesting. We're going to be watching it and and, uh, and keeping our eyes on it. Um, is there is there some well uh, one of the things I, I love the, the 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 comment you made just on on build your views on the fundamentals and, and test it with these technicals. Uh, and that's one of the areas where you've applied also momentum is, well, it's one of the factors that has been in, in vogue a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about, maybe in the second half of the program, how momentum strategies are changing. But talk about how you've built um, some unique momentum technical strategies, how you think about momentum generally as a concept. I know you, you guys have some proprietary ways of looking at this. I mean, maybe sort of talk about where you're, you're comfortable there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like I think we'll probably get into it during the second half of the show. But one of the, you know, when you talk about momentum, ultimately what it boils down to is a simple rate of change. You know, and that's what that's ultimately the the heart of tr- traditional academic momentum factor. You know, and it's, that's kind of it's simplistic, but it works. Um, I think that uh, you can improve on that, and we we improve on that through a couple of ways. Number one. And then the other way people use just to back up, it's not so academic, but it's common, is to look at moving averages and moving average cross and different frequencies, which give you an idea of um, smoothing out the noise and supposedly give you an idea of what direction the market's moving. So you have these two kind of competing or, or t- things working in tandem, but I think both of them can be improved upon, whether it's rate of change or moving averages. What we do is we use regressions, linear regressions um, on on price series, and we run them at a a, a high frequency, a bunch of different time frames. So the idea is to get this breadth of, um, this momentum information through those regressions across a large swath of time frames. And we can go through, step through, you know, 30, 40 different time frames for each asset class. And then we can know, you know, is momentum deteriorating on this time frame or in the middle of the, this, uh, of the spectrum that we're looking at? It's a much more, we can finely tune it. We can scale into and out of positions better that way. You don't end up with some of the whipsaws that you get in traditional momentum investing, which has, I think, been behind a lot of the moves we've seen in the market currently.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so th- this, this, you, you, refer to these regression time series as trend breath, a TB indicator, at least some of the, the shorthand I've seen you, you post on Twitter. So I think that is one of those unique things, uh, that you guys are talking a lot about. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, you're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. Uh, and Warren, one of the pieces that went viral a bit on Twitter, um, you had some really interesting charts about how momentum, uh, and momentum is often assumed with like, this growth and tech. And I think part of that's just because growth and tech have been in these momentum strategies for the last like 10 years like consistently, and like, that's the only thing that's been working. But your point is, momentum is about to shift, and, and what do you see happening in, in sort of momentum strategies?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Momentum is agnostic on the underlying security, it's just looking, like I said, at the rate of change of uh, of what's happened, the performance and price. So it can be uh, anything could be in there, whether it's a utility or a tech stock, they could be in the momentum strategy depending on how they perform. Um, one of the things I think, like I said, lo- looking at trend breadth, and, which, again, is the key there is to look across Momentum measure momentum across a whole bunch of different time frames through linear regressions, that's something that's kind of foundational to our firm. Um, One of the things that kind of brings into focus was just how crazy the March 2020 downdraft and rebound was. So this was – we never seen anything like this in the price data for the broad markets where you had such a just waterfall decline and then, you know, spring back up. And not only that, but the – the springing back up was more of a K-shaped recovery that everyone's familiar with now, where you had you know, certain stocks that you know, performed well, especially during those mid-months of 2020, the tech stocks and kind of the work-from-home stocks and what I would call ultimately long-duration stocks performing well, and the short-duration cyclical group was still languishing. So after the vaccine announcement, it kind of reversed course, and we saw those cyclical stocks start to rebound and what became obvious was that base effect, going back to that deep decline we saw in March 2020, was going to flow through to momentum strategies. So coming up, this was in February, we published a report. We knew coming up in March that we could kind of model the the way a a very stripped down, basic, but I think reflective of reality momentum strategy would have to rebalance its portfolio. And the conclusion was, these momentum uh, funds are going to have to be selling a lot of tech in healthcare, the big winners early in the pandemic, and buying a lot of the cyclical stocks, financials and energy specifically. And so, we we uh, we hypothesized that this would be the greatest momentum-based turnover we've we've ever seen, and this is coming during a period where you've seen momentum-based strategies attract, you know many multiples of assets over the last few years. So is anyone's guess exactly how it turned out? I think uh, we're kind of mostly through that rotation at this point, but there's some aftershocks I think that we will feel. But it, it has, in fact, that's been a big, uh, I think, uh, that's, that's been the spark that lit the, the fuse of this rotation that we're, we're experiencing right now, in my opinion.
1: It's interesting. I mean, I, I, one of my friends who's actually going to be a guest uh, coming up a little bit uh, in a few months, Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research, has has published uh, some modelings on what he calls liquidity cascades, and he, he uses some different momentum strategies as part of – his research and you know he's been publishing a bit saying well a he uses like three or four different momentum strategies because they rebalance on such different frequencies they're not they're not doing none of them do like this continuous rebalancing and so you know you get things that rebalance sometimes on quarterly sometimes on semi-annual cycles like the biggest momentum strategy in the market i think only does twice a year from from msci and that, that may not happen until May, is one of his latest notes. Uh, you're thinking the new indicators are starting to show something different, but maybe the traditional strategies haven't started showing it yet.
0: Well, I think that um, it's it, one of the things I wanted to do is try and pin down how much money follows momentum strategies in general. And like whether you're 12 minus 1 or 12 minus 2. Momentum strategy, every one of these strategies, uh, even if you blend different times, like six months, 12 months, every single one of the strategies I found looked back 12 months to last March ultimately. And that base effect was the thing I was really seizing on. Um, now, he's right that, you know, in reality, you're going to have different rebalancing schedules, which will absolutely impact when those that turnover takes place. Ultimately, you know, those specific funds, those dedicated funds are, are a drop in the bucket to all the different momentum-based strategies that are out there is what I is is what I believe, and so I think the market should be able to digest those specific funds. It's just a matter of how, and it's hard to track how how many will be rebalancing over April and May, um, and kind of that's the aftershocks that I referred to. Like if we just yep. did a straight-up academic study of this, then we are probably ninety percent done with the rotation we've already seen, but. it's not an academic world that we live in. This is, you know, you have real funds and real money and different rebalancing schedules. And like you said, most aren't continuous. So you're going to end up getting date-specific rebalancing that could be aftershocks here. And then to further complicate the whole thing, if you look at these cyclical stocks and look at the chart of the cyclical stock, whether it's an airline or an oil stock or a bank in many cases – June 8th of last year was this massive spike in value across the board of cyclical value stocks, and so we have another date where I think it's not going to be exactly the same dramatic effect that we saw, but it's going to skew those yearly returns as we move into June. You're going to look less attractive as those cyclical stocks, so we could see a sharp unwind of some of this as you move Mm. through the year, but. I suspect we'll be, you know, playing a different game by midsummer, anyways. Where this isn't really what we're looking at. We're thinking of other things. But still, um, yeah, the, the the rebalance timing will certainly play into the the how this rotation plays out fully.
1: Now you've also launched a gold model, um, and I think that's sort of interesting timing. I mean, what you, got, you got rates as one of the dominating stories, and, and gold was doing well. It sort of uh, maybe come under pressure with some of the interest rate stories recently. Um, what, what's your sense on? How do you think about going to gold as a model? Yeah, I mean, uh,
0: what we found gold's really. Bad. Was a difficult one to model. What you find is there's a lot of the, the the indicators that work are transitory. So like you you go through these regimes where it's hard to say this thing works all the time consistently with gold. Uh, so what that ends up uh, translating to in a model is we relied heavily on trend breadth, the concept we talked about before with gold, which did work really well. So that's price based, momentum based, across many time frames for gold. Um, We also look at positioning, Uh, we also look, like you said, at at real rates, Um, and we also look at asset allocation, so how attractive is gold compared to other assets. So we end up pulling data from our real asset allocation model, which compares 17 different, the attractiveness of 17 different models or assets. And we, we look into that model and see how is gold being treated, just against other assets, against the broad universe. And so uh, that's how we ended up. Those are the four components we ended up on with gold. Uh, when I look at it, and the model went from, it was a buy and just recently moved to a neutral, which is really a result of the momentum of gold through the trend breadth uh, component starting to fade. When I look at what's going on with gold, though, it's pretty obvious that it's a rate story. So rates bottomed on uh, August 4th of last year and gold topped on August 6th of last year. And so really it's been an opposite direction phenomenon since then. And when I look at it, it makes sense to map this, what I've been calling the duration heuristic, onto across assets, you know, and gold's one of those. So, you know, gold is a... What some people call an infinite duration asset. So when, when rates rise like this, it's especially harmful. Your opportunity costs for owning gold in a no-yielding asset right. start to go up as well. So, you know, this is kind of um, I, I, my sense is that until something changes in this overall kind of what I'm calling duration heuristic, then gold's going uh, to struggle to really get back in
1: gear. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I think you're right on this, on uh, certainly the topping and the bottoming of rates and, and the price that makes has makes a lot of sense. I mean, you had the narrative on all the negative yielding bonds in Europe. You know, used to have this carrying costs because you know you got you earned interest in in bonds and then you started having to pay interest to own bonds and so gold didn't charge anything. You know, that was like a nice positive carry to not be negative. Um, and and you know, I, I but now there's this inflation narrative. Um, and you had did gold do well during the 70s and 80s when you did have higher inflation. And, you know, I think it's, you know, one of the questions is, is d- will it do that? You know, I guess, uh, you know, you do still have real rates that are still negative, although it's trading, you know, with, I, I see it definitely trading with rates. There's no question on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, we've seen, so I think rates are kind of, this is a weird environment. And that's why it's so, it, I, I think the, the the quick answer to your question is: I believe gold. I, I'm a secular. I want a secular secular bull on gold. I want to own gold for the long term. It's going to have a, I think, an important place in um, asset allocation strategies moving forward over the next decade or so. And I mean, when we talk about inflation, I think it's really a, a timing issue, and that's what the conversation is really revolving around right now. Will we have? When will this inflation start to materialize? Um, uh, I right now, I kind of take the it seems like it's hard always to judge consensus, but it seems like consensus is that inflation is like right around the corner. I don't really see that. And I think gold's kind of telling us the same thing. I think when we start seeing inflation move up then by by that, if, if inflation is moving up faster than rates, then, you know. Real rates are growing more negative, which right. is positive for gold ultimately. But what we're seeing right now is nominal rates are moving higher. And the economy is still kind of just revving the engine, getting ready to to take off. And, and true inflation is not here. We've had, you know, a lot of, um, I think, inflation chicken littles. But at the end of the day, there's supply chain issues. Uh, there are transitory things that are re- left over from the pandemic, just like oil I talked about is a still an impaired market. It's not a true inflation signal at this point in time. It's not. Uh, I can say that with confidence on the inflation market or on the oil market. So I think we're still a bit off in gold sending that signal. But over time, it will materialize. And when it does, you want to have some gold in your portfolio.
1: Uh, we're talking with Warren Pies of 314 Research. Um, and, and let's, Warren, talk a little bit. You mentioned sort of real assets as an input to your gold model. Maybe let's let's talk about that whole real assets allocation. I mean, sort of, you know, one of the st- standard allocations we've challenged here with Professor Siegel is the 60-40 and, and the negative real returns on bonds being a challenge. You've put together some unique things on a real asset model as well. You we call it the RAA uh, real asset allocation model. Uh, talk about how you built this RAA framework and what's going into it, and, and what, what makes it unique.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was like I said at the top of the show was you know I I thought if you're going to build a research firm for the next for the new generation of research firms, you better be ready to have a have an answer for asset allocators that are struggling with what I think is going to be a tough time going forward for 60-40. and. What I think uh, the right uh, approach to to solving that problem is is to open up your available asset menu somewhat. And so what we did is we, and obviously you want to be rigorous and and exacting with how you build your model, but uh, what we did is we opened up our our asset allocation model of 17 different assets, uh, and included in that are things like um, Bitcoin and gold, real estate, we have an entire real asset sleeve of that model. So you have traditional 60-40 is bond stock. We have bond stock, real asset, and cash. Uh, and I would make, like, just we were talking about modeling and little mistakes. You can make one thing we do in all of our models where we have a cash component, for instance, is if, you, if you've done a lot of modeling, a lot of um, the, the switch or the cash, the, the, the component you'll call cash in your model you'll switch to is oftentimes T-bills. Which again, if you're talking about a falling interest rate environment, when you switch to T-bills over the last 40 years, you get a really positive drift in your performance. So, in all of our models, we I said we're making a decision. We are not going to get a we're not going to get another 40 years like the last where right. you have falling T-bill rates. So when we switch into cash, it's a true just static ones file, right? This is just literal cash, no return. Um, What's that? No return. No return. Absolutely. You're not getting anything out of that. That's just a, a risk management position, right? So we take these 17 assets, including true cash, and uh, we, we, we rate them based on our trend breadth. Um, one of the other principles I have is that you can't. You need to really rely on technicals when you're doing cross-asset asset allocation, because fundamentals, you really cross your signals when you start adding fundamentals into a, a model like that. And then we use um, hierarchical risk parity, which is a concept coming out of um, machine learning, to um, synthesize the assets, put them into buckets based on how closely they relate to each other, and then using your optimizations, your portfolio optimizations, according to each bucket and how they shake out. And the end result of all that is you have an opening to 17 different assets, you have you make sure that you're on the right side of uh of the trends that the major predominant trends that you want to be following and you have really broad diversification in a smart way through these ml tech techniques um across all these assets and so that's how we ended up building a real asset allocation model uh it's been live for about 4 months and so far year to date it's up 14.5% Versus 6040 model is, or 6040 portfolio of bond stocks is up about 3% over the year. So this is just a few months does not make a model, but so far we're running the experiment real time and it's working for us.
1: Warren is flexing his muscles here, which he which he has which he has a few of them, and uh, this is a <laughs> this is a big uh, big flex here. But I mean that is a great I mean obviously an amazing ten percent over ten percent outperformance to start the year. Uh, now you know when you look at your model, um, and I think I'm looking at the latest report. Um, I mean, compared to the standard 60-40, right, The you know, it's going to be cap-weighted world, it's going to have Apple and uh, Amazon and these big tech at the start of it, and then the 40% of traditional bonds. You know, you flip that on its head in terms of where the allocations are, and your largest allocation that I'm looking at is over 10% commodities um, and then small caps. I mean, so it's, I mean, the commodities are running, I mean, that's sort of the momentum, the inflation, and been a good hedge for, for bonds, um, which are the, the bottom of the model.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, we've had our uh, government bond position was as low as 0.6% of overall portfolio of long-term government bonds. Uh, just It's now back up to about 1, 1. 1%, 1.1%, I think, or or thereabouts. Uh, and like you said, its commodities has been, its this model has ridden the commodity reflation, small cap and now a little bit into value stocks which it hadn't been super uh crazy about value stocks but has recently switched over into some value stocks and you know and then you have a REITs uh are starting to crop up so maybe that's uh I see that and I think the model is thinking okay we've had the model doesn't really think like this but maybe you know let's just let's just pretend for a second We've had rates back up like this. Do we, we want to add a little duration to the portfolio? What's the intelligent way to add some duration in this environment? Well, having REITs available to you might be part of that solution. So that's in the model, and, and it's ticked up lately. But, yes, it's been a reflation. It's been screaming reflation during these months, and we've caught that trend and have ridden it. And we'll probably keep going for, in, until we see something break on those trends.
1: Yeah, that's, that, that's quite interesting. And sort of just rethinking, um, you know, sort of Bitcoin as an asset class is it's one of those that generate a lot of discussion uh, and, and the model looks Bitcoin, too. I mean, it, it has it um, on par with like a large cap allocation, um, like to U.S. stocks, you know, not far from a NASDAQ allocation, it's sort of similar to a value allocation, but it's meaningful. I mean, it's it's at a number closer to you know maybe I'm looking like 8% or so I mean is 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 uh, do you think we can get advisors to an 8% allocation on Bitcoin how do you think about that
0: yeah I mean I do believe that we can Um, and I I mean when I first showed this to um, someone who I've been friends who used to be he's he's, you know 15 20 years older than me kind of a mentor and really old-school Wall Street guy ran a big hedge fund in Florida here for a number of years I showed him the model, and he he was he balked at the Bitcoin positioning early on. I knew that we, that would be a bit of a a potential hurdle to, to get through, but you can see the adoption that's taken place over the just the last 12 months. And the way I would confront an advisor who was worried about that is we had the model really never goes above eight percent on Bitcoin. That's about where you see it stop out. And we don't have an explicit cap, but that's how it works out with the math behind the scenes. Well, in 2018, we had entered the year with an 8% Bitcoin allocation in the model's back test. Bitcoin declined by about 80% that year. And given the way the model handles it and can reduce and scale positions and uh, just the fact that Bitcoin traditionally has not been correlated to these other assets, you only saw the the model, the overall model, decline by 5% that year. 60-40 was down by like 3% in 2018. So ultimately, that's not a that's hardly a death blow to an asset allocator, you know? And so what I say is if you can find an asset that's undergoing mass institutional adoption, like Bitcoin appears to be right now, and at the same time has a very low correlation across assets, it's kind of the holy grail for an asset allocator. So it makes sense to have, you need to have that exposure. And it's going to go from fear of Bitcoin to fear of not having Bitcoin uh, in career risk really soon here.
1: It seems yeah it's, it's it's always hard as you say to, to identify what's in the consensus model um you're seeing new platforms onboarded this this week we got one of the major wirehouses Morgan Stanley starting to open up access to uh you know you don't you see smaller groups doing this kind of stuff but uh as a big wirehouse platform that was a big piece of news this week uh, it'd be interesting to see where we are um i think it's still difficult to get access uh to these to these platforms and it'd be interesting uh, where are at, we're, we're in our final three to four minutes, Warren. In, in terms of other models that you have, um, anything that you'd want to highlight, cover why people should think about the unique unique approach of three uh, yeah, fourteen. I mean, we have the other op- model specific
0: to what we're we've done is uh, something we call the yield optimizer, which is again a, a function of like we have no yield in the and currently and so if you're if you want to create income how do you do it so we t- again very similar framework to real asset allocation we take 13 income producing asset classes and combine them in our own unique way uh, what's interesting there is we've you know people complain this market's expensive um that model recently popped heavily into tobacco stocks uh and you know you could see on the charts that altria was breaking out of a four year downtrend and it really has caught that, that move. And if you look at it, you know, I think uh, some of these tobacco stocks look pretty cheap on traditional metrics, and especially when you say um, relative to the rest of the stocks available in the universe. And so I thought that was interesting to see the model bounce over there and grab about a 7% yield out of um, Altria.
1: That's interesting. There's a few people on Twitter, I'm sure, we, we got a copy into that who, who cover those stocks pretty closely. Where did you come up with 314 as a name? What's uh, what's the background of that?
0: Pi. Uh, it's a, you know 314 Pi. Um, there we my, go. We just passed uh, Pi Day. Of had, 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 one of my partners, Pi, was really meaningful to her as well. And so um, it made a lot of sense
2: to just kind of... And I
0: didn't want to put my name in the firm. And... I think that Ned, being at Ned Davis for many years, I think Ned was maybe a little hamstrung by uh, always having his name in the firm. So, like you know, they're going to try and keep Ned around for as long as they can because uh, <laughs> his name's on the building. So I didn't want to have that same dilemma. I want to be able to go join Professor Siegel on the beach one day and let the rest of the guys run the firm. Yep. Um,
1: so 3:14, we just passed Pi Day here, so it's good good week to have you on here as well. Yeah. Um, any sort of closing thoughts as, as you think about uh, building a firm and and who should be reaching out type of fir- type of groups besides you know asset managers like us who who are you trying to service?
0: You know, I I've been trying. We we're an institutional provider, so we've had a lot of like unfortunately a lot of um, retail type of inquiries, and I think they're kind of the the you know unfortunately you can't serve the entire market. So we are serving the institutional market. I think it's a sophisticated product um, and something that institutions and asset allocators could really benefit from. You know, we really look at the market in two ways. We try and service the left and right side of our, of our brain here. So, you know, every other week I write a thought piece, you know, we could be talking about the duration heuristic and what's going on and modeling different momentum strategies and kind of just thinking about that. We lead the, the reports with a bunch of quotes and stuff like that and kind of just think a little bit more flex the qualitative side of our brain and then we we also are just hardcore quants on the other side you know my partner is brings uh, some really serious machine learning chops to the table and so i, I like the idea And me it, it to me it appeals to having you know, have once combine these two areas
1: well this is great uh you know we've been enjoying following along as a client warren pies of 314 research i'm jeremy schwartz who's behind the markets and 6sm 132 have a great week everybody